Advancements in technology have greatly increased patient accessibility, mental health support, and data collection. New technology allows for improved patient access and aids healthcare providers' ability to monitor and understand their patients' well-being. You are listening to ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Jennifer Cottle, host of Everyday Family Medicine. Joining me today is Dr. Adam Kaplan, the principal psychiatric consultant to the Johns Hopkins Multiple Sclerosis and Transverse Myelitis Centers of Excellence. Dr. Kaplan, welcome to ReachMD. Thanks very much, Dr. Cottle. It's a pleasure to be here. So first of all, let's talk about mental health information technology. Can you talk to us about why mental health information technology is so important? Essentially, for psychiatry and mental health in general, there has been a tradition of being technophobic. So essentially, for a psychiatrist, a pen and an ECT machine is considered technology. Only more recently have we been getting on the electronic health record bandwagon. And this has been a huge problem for two reasons. The first of all is that we haven't decreased the suicide rate in the last six decades in this country. And that should be telling us that we're not doing something right, especially because we know the medications we use work in controlled trials. And we know that we can decrease suicide in a number of studies that have been done either 90 to 100 percent. So the the big problem seems to be that we're not getting good information and making informed decisions. For example, when a patient comes in to see me, I tell them that they're depressed. I make the diagnosis first, tell them they're depressed. I tell them to start exercising, start them on a medication, perhaps do some talk therapy planning for them. And then I say, please come back in a month. And when they come back in a month, they say, how's your mood now compared to how it was a month ago? And I just want the audience to let that sink in for a second because that is an absurd question to ask a patient. I don't remember what I had for dinner three days ago, so how can I possibly think a patient, particularly a patient with depression where cognition is often involved, cognitive impairment is one of the cardinal symptoms of depression, and how I can actually think that they're going to potentially remember what happened a month ago is absurd. So really, this is the chance to bring medicine to or the technology that medicine has had for glucometers and hypertension, you know, home blood pressure cuffs and those kinds of things to psychiatry so that we can step up our game and provide our patients with the kind of care that is now within reach. That makes a lot of sense. You know, in regards to the biological basis of depression, you know, especially in MS patients, can you talk a little bit about the application of technological innovation to improve research as well as clinical care of patients with mental illness? As you know, Dr. Cottle, where I come at this is I hate depression. I hate what it does to people and families and lives. So when I decided to make depression public enemy number one, that I was going to work to try to help people battle this disease, there was a lot of heterogeneity. So you have to have five of nine symptoms greater than two weeks in order to make the diagnosis of depression, and those are trouble with sleep, interest, guilt, energy, mood, concentration, appetite, psychomotor retardation, and suicidal ideation. That's just the CEM caps for those who remember their acronyms from medical school. And the problem is that there are over 230 combinations of those. So the real problem is heterogeneity. How do you approach depression where you're not going to be studying a population that has depression for various reasons? So for example, if you've got an antibiotic, you want to study bacterial pneumonia, you're not just going to go out and pick up everybody who's coughing. You really want to make sure that the people who are coughing have a bacterial pneumonia. So I started studying MS because MS, multiple sclerosis, has the highest rate of depression of any medical, neurological, or surgical disease. And In studying it, it became very clear to me that in order to get good information about what was going on with their depression, I needed to step it up from a technological standpoint. And that's where this whole effort to improve 
our ability to monitor people's moods, both for research and clinical care, came about. That's how it evolved. Let's talk a little bit about this as it relates to clinical practice. You know, we hear a lot about health information technology. Really, what's this role of the mental health information technology with regards to clinical work? That question that you just asked is a truly enormous question, I think bigger than most listeners can appreciate. And I say that because if you stop and think for a minute, we are all, probably everybody on the phone is using, uh, almost certainly using a smartphone technology to get through their day. We all use GPS now to get anywhere. I'm sure that the part of our brain that is mapping things is going to become vestigial because we're going to now have the ability to use this technology. But anyway, we order things to Amazon that just appear on our stairs and to our house, leading up to our house. And so we are using technology left, right, and center in our own personal world. But if you then stop and think for one minute, what is going on in our clinical practice, it's kind of absurd. But I think that when you talk to your patients and certainly when you think about your own practice, compared to what you're doing in your civilian life, if you will, technology really hasn't made it to the forefront of what's going on with the practice of medicine. And I think that there are a number of reasons, certainly adopting new technology is one of them, but I think the primary reason is that we haven't had a coherent approach to building this system in a way that one, helps us figure out what's going on with the reimbursement and who's paying for it. But really much more important is there are so many treatments that range from snake oil salesmen to penicillin, which, you know, changed everything for infectious disease. And knowing what is going to be useful out there and what isn't going to be useful is critical to physicians. So I think we're slow to adopt things unless we really know that they're validated. And unfortunately, most of health information technology hasn't been validated. So right now, what I would advise people to do is certainly incorporate the things into your practice which are prima facie on first looking at them. They make a lot of sense. Obviously, glucometers, uh, blood pressure cuffs, those have been out for a while. But now if it's a glucometer that can send the information through the internet directly to your office and incorporate it into your medical record, that's not such a huge jump in technology. I think be a bit cautious when it's going to be using a virtual world to help people recover from phobias, I mean, we just need more data on that. But I think that for now, the technology has arrived to help us in our personal worlds, and I think it has arrived to help us in the things that we do as part of our common practice. You make a lot of really good points there about technology and and practice, and there are some of us that, yes, we might have an iPad or an iPod or smartphones or things like that, but we also, we may have those in our personal life, but we may not be used to using those in our sort of professional and clinical practice life. So, you know, what do you what suggestions do you have for the physician out there who just may not be used to incorporating information technology into their daily practice? You're holding my feet to the fire. So, I would say and it's it's of course that's the key question as far as the adoption of technology. And again, what I would say is that there is a growing group of people, myself included, that feel very strongly that if we're going to ask physicians to adopt new technology, we really have to provide the same level of support and care that they have required for the use of all their therapeutic strategies, such as medication. So, you know, if it's a medication, you want to make sure it was tested in a rigorous, ideally a randomized trial to show that it benefited people. And so I would say that there are a lot of apps out there. In fact, there are over 3 million apps out there if you count 
all of the apps that are available for both the Google Droid world and the iMac Apple world. But 40,000 of those plus are related to healthcare. And obviously, you're not going to go out there and have a chance to search through all of them. But I would say as more and more technology opportunities become available, then try the ones that are being adopted because they have evidence-based support for them. And one of the things that we developed here at Hopkins is Mood 24-7, and perhaps we'll have a chance to talk about that at some point later. But it's the kind of thing where my advice is there's a lot of apps out there. I would go for the ones that have the best support, just like there's a lot of medicines. And I would use the same criteria for gee, what do I use to decide I'm going to use a new triptan? Or what do I use to decide if I want to use a new um, proton pump inhibitor? Those same kind of, I want to see the evidence. I want to know that it works. I want to make sure that it's actually going to be more help than harm. Those are the kind of criteria. But, you know, the 40,000 apps out there, it's coming at people fast and furious. It's just the good news is you don't have to try to get through all of those. There is maybe 1% of those have any kind of evidence to support their efficacy in the clinic. So it really is a small group right now of health information technology opportunities that actually have any support whatsoever to say that they're useful. I really appreciate you, Dr. Kaplan, for, for joining us today on ReachMD. It is such a pleasure, Dr. Kaplan. Thank you so much for giving time and attention to what often we get left out in the cold here, mental health. So I really appreciate you taking time to bring this to the forefront. No problem. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Cottle. To download this podcast and others in the series, please visit us at reachmd.com slash everydayfamilymedicine. We encourage you to leave comments and to share this program with your colleagues. Thank you for listening.